Let's imagine the not-too-distant future. You feel more in control of your photos than you ever have before. You look forward to the regular creative dates on your calendar. You're moving forward on that project that means so much to you. You are on fire with inspiration, and you are finally scrapbooking consistently. This is not a hypothetical, it's a real-life possibility. And for the first time, I've created a workshop specifically focused on the problem of consistency. It's called Sparked, and I'm excited to share it with you for free. Visit simplescrapper.com sparked to get access to the training and make this possibility your reality. If you kind of race to digitize things right away, you wind up having a mess of physical files and a mess of digital files, and it just becomes chaotic. Welcome to Scrapbook Your Way, the show that explores the breadth of ways to be a memory keeper today. I'm your host, Jennifer Wilson, owner of Simple Scrapper and author of The New Rules of Scrapbooking. This is episode 64. In this episode, I'm joined by Margot Note, an archivist who specializes in preserving family history. Our conversation includes a wealth of practical advice, including suggestions for archiving stories of the coronavirus pandemic and using this time of social distancing to prioritize your memory-keeping activities. But before we jump into my conversation with Margot, I want to remind you about Refresh, our seasonal online retreat for My Simple Scrapper members. The next session starts on Thursday, April 16th. Refresh is a seven-day guided experience with daily activities you can personalize and a number of live Zoom sessions for accountability and camaraderie. And as you know, it's photography month at Simple Scrapper, and the theme of this session of Refresh is reflection. The curated activities will help you reconnect with your hobby and yourself during this very unusual time. If you've been feeling untethered and out of sorts, Refresh is a nurturing and supportive experience to help you find a little bit of comfort and control. If you're not yet a member, I'd love for you to head over to simplescrapper.com refresh. I want to make this session as accessible as I can, so I have a special offer for you to join us. And now on to my conversation with Margot Note. Hey, Margot, welcome to Scrapbook Your Way. If you could just kick things off and share a little bit about yourself, that would be great. Um, yeah, of course. Um, so thank you so much for having me. My name is Margot Note. I'm an archives and records management consultant based in New York City, and I help individuals and organizations harness their history. And I do that primarily through organizing and making accessible historical documents and information so that people who have collected things over time or organizations have a sense of what they have and they can use it for research purposes, for educational purposes. And uh, before I did that, I was working as a archivist at uh, nonprofit organizations, and I've been doing my consulting practice for about four years. All right. I am so fascinated by this. I've honestly never met anyone like you who does this work. And so I think it's going to be really fun to dig in. And obviously, you know, scrapbookers and archivists and librarians and genealogists, we all have these intersections in our worlds and are so Uh curious about how others approach history and family and memories and all that. So I think this is going to be a great conversation. 
Definitely. So one thing we always do on the podcast is share one thing that's exciting you right now. Now, we'd be remiss to say we're in the middle of a pandemic, and I can only imagine you in New York City are maybe feeling the effects of that even deeper than than many of us around the country and around the world. Um, but I think we're all looking for little like slivers of hope and silver lining. So what's one thing that's keeping you going right now? Yeah, it's really good that you mentioned the pandemic because I think in some ways a very small sil- silver lining out of all this mess is that we're really um people are realizing that this is this is a historical moment and i've been seeing things in uh, newspaper articles blog posts uh social media about really giving people guidelines to how how to record their memories at this certain moment and so that's what i feel is is somewhat exciting about what's happening now is that there's there's a real call to action to really document the everyday experiences of people that are living through this. So I've seen it at um, historical societies around the United States, universities and colleges, um, community archives, uh, libraries, archives, museums are all kind of putting out a call to action about collecting these stories and really giving people also guidelines about how to collect these stories, whether you're taking photographs, you're recording information, you're writing it down in a journal. So I think in some ways, recognizing that we're in a very unique historical moment and then also educating people about how exactly to document the you know, the experiences that they're having right now, I think is super important. Well, do you have maybe one specific like tip or piece of advice that you would share? Because I was thinking about this and and contrasting it to my experience of 9-11. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there was so much that it was a one day was fine and then the next day wasn't. And so there were headlines and, and then of everything. And then of course the aftermath, whereas this was, it's the timing of it is very different. There's not this one date in history Mm -hmm. after which everything was different. Yeah. It's kind of a slow burn. Mm -hmm. So it's funny. We were talking about nine 11 in New York and then hurricane Sandy. It was kind of the same experience where you had like one event and then it was the aftermath of it where this seems just, it's kind of a rolling nightmare (laughs) (laughs) that there's kind of an ebb and flow. So I think what's really important is to uh, reach out to family members. So on my website, I have a few uh, what I call oral history kits where I've been trying to um, have people be aware of these. Like one, for instance, has 300 questions where you can document your life history, but then also document the time period as well. So I think uh, looking online for places that have kind of uh, I know talking points that people can use or questions I think is important. Um, I've seen stuff at, I think it's the Vermont uh, Folk Life Center that is kind of really walking people through the experience of what exactly they should capture. Um, but I think even as the days and weeks play out, we'll see more and more of that information being out there about how to specifically record these experiences. And so it'll be, I think, very interesting years later when we look back to see what have we really generated out of this uh, shared experience. Oh, for sure. And I know that I think a lot of us are thinking about like what what will forever be different 
Um, mm-hmm. What won't go back to normal, you know, for better or worse, because I'm sure there'll be some of both. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, yeah, it's, it's it's certainly fascinating from that perspective, even though, you know, challenging to live it at the same time. Exactly. What I found, I think, too, is that this experience is really forcing people to be more online. Now, of course, you know, I grew up with the internet. A lot of people grew up with the internet, but I do have older relatives that are a little less um, comfortable with technology. And this specific moment is really pushing people to get much more tech savvy. And I think that's important, too, whereas we might not necessarily have the kind of physical engagements that we have now or maybe in the near future, but there'll be much more digital engagement. And I think especially historical societies, archives, museums, libraries will be pushed even further to put collections online and make it much more accessible. Um, in the years moving forward. Oh, that's so fascinating. Yeah, I I taught my mom how to use Zoom the other day. And it's, it's certainly there's people are, are being forced into changes. And mm-hmm. um, there's going to have new skills in the end of it. So that's certainly a positive benefit even for, for staying connected and having a, you know, various modes of communication going forward. Exactly. So one of the things we always like to talk about is your memory keeping bucket list. Now, I'm not aware if you're actually a scrapbooker or you're just a memory keeper in general, but we all have these stories that we want to tell, record, or document in some way. So what's one story from your life you want, you still want to tell? I think for me, it's not so much my story, but the my ancestors' story. So um, I'm not a scrapbooker myself. I'm... Uh, my mother is a genealogist, mm-hmm. so she's been looking back at the uh, Spanish flu pandemic of uh, 1918 and finding family stories. So she's shared some uh, genealogy records with me. And so it's been interesting to see how a somewhat similar pandemic affected uh, past relatives and finding those, trying to find those stories online and really getting a sense of what that impact was for my family. So in some cases, it's not necessarily my story that I want documented, but it's kind of a new light, uh, a new light on a historical moment and seeing where the similarities lie and where the differences lie as well. So my mother's been very good at going through the materials and sending me kind of text messages about, you know, um, past family members that have survived it, some people that, you know, that didn't survive it. And so I think that's been um, really interesting to connect the current moment to a past moment. Well, I think from the, from that family history and genealogy perspective, that going through this ourselves gives us a new way to look for, for context in our projects, Mm -hmm. because we may be, uh, we're looking at our actual ancestors information and then we can't figure out, well, so when people died in 1918 or around that time, and if you weren't looking at the world context of that, you may not have understood why. Exactly. Exactly. Where I think it's, you know, there's an impact of, uh, I mean, from a perspective of a historian, there's always the context of what's happening at the time. Mm-hmm. So you have the facts and the figures and, you know, you have maybe a death certificate, but then also kind of kind of peeking behind the curtain and seeing what are the world events that happened at this time? Why, for example, did this person die of this? And why were they living here and who the family members were? It just, it gives a really richer context to just facts and figures. It, it 
gives you a sense of kind of seeing history through other people's eyes. Oh, 100%. So we actually just got back from Sweden um, on the 17th of March. Uh, we went over to do a lot of family history research. And our, our trip was cut a little short, obviously. And we've been uh, homebound ever since. But it was so amazing just to hear the stories of people we talked to over there. And then those here in the U.S. at the, the Swedish American Museum to explain why why so many came over at the, around the turn of the century and, and why so many came over without their children in hopes that they could someday bring them along and, and many of them were not able to. And you need that bigger context of why these migrations are happening and why people make decisions that maybe wouldn't make sense for us today. Exactly. Uh, it's it's basically, you know, being able to not have, uh, it's to take yourself into the situation that people lived in and really get a sense of their lived experience. Mm -hmm. And I think so much of what we see, of course, is through the lens of our own personal experience and the, you know, the decades that we live. But I think especially working with family history and personal history, it's really important to have a very empathetic and sympathetic view of a kind of why choices were made. Choices that, you know, as we look at it might seem totally illogical or painful, but they were, you know, in the time period that is the choices made the most sense. Well, I think that's what makes it bring you back to modern day and what we do as, as scrapbookers and memory keepers. That's why it's so important not just to have the photos and the facts, but to have the feelings and the emotions and the decision making behind that to, mm -hmm. you know, leave that part of yourself behind along with, you know, the, sim the simplicities of it so that that context can be provided for future generations and, you know, society as a whole. Yes, definitely. So I wanted to... I'm excited to have you here because it, obviously we talked about you have a very different perspective. So could you talk a little bit about what an archivist is and what do they do and and how you got into this industry as opposed to maybe going down a different path? Sure. So archivists are professionals who are experts at managing archives. And so what are archives? They are records of enduring value and of lasting importance. And they can be things like letters, photographs, sound recordings, and increasingly digital records. So a lot of times you'll encounter archivists, let's say at college and universities, or in specific um, business archives or nonprofit archives, and there are some people like me who are consulting archivists where we work with people and organizations, let's say, around the United States with their specific um, needs regarding these historical materials. So records of enduring value really means that if you think about the records, let's say, that you create throughout a lifetime, there's only going to be maybe three to five percent that that's worth saving. So important photographs, journals, letters, it's not necessarily going to be like receipts or kind of the detritus that, you know, comes across our desk and junk mail. So the, so archives are really important because they are primary sources for um, history. So historians doing research or that people doing genealogy research are looking at these records to help them figure out the past. 
And I got into the field, I primarily started, I I thought I wanted to be a librarian. So like growing up, I always worked in libraries. My first job out of school was working at an academic library. But then I kind of discovered more of history. So where I was working specifically, I could get free tuition to get a master's in history. And working as a historian, that's when I kind of fell in love with archival records, historical records. And I really was intrigued about how archivists work and how they organize things and kind of the method behind their madness. So then I went um, later on to uh, get a master's in library and information science. And then I did a little bit more education for archives and records management. Um, So it kind of was a a weaving path. I mean, libraries and archivists are kind of um, similar fields. Mm -hmm. So I kind of jumped to... um, working as an archivist. And then I started my consulting practice after working for a while as an archivist. And then I was laid off, which turned out to be like the best experience of that time because it really forced me to be really creative about those next steps. And it was kind of a wonderful gift that, you know, came in really bad packaging. Um, So I thought, you know, how can I, how can I set up a consulting practice where I can help people that might not have ever, you know, they might not have a formal archives in their organizations and certainly not in their homes, but how can I give them this expertise in a way that can solve their problems and to work on projects with them? Well, I'm and sure it's that, been oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, it's it's been very exciting because it's like almost like boot camp because I get questions all the time from the public. I have a million different projects happening at once, and it has really uh, helped me professionally to really keep on my toes. And then I also um, teach as a professor in two programs, and one is with women's historians, and so it's been helpful for me also to talk about archives. Uh, to new graduate students because they have so many questions and they have a really fresh perspective. So all of this work has really like kept me on my toes. That's for sure. It sounds so exciting just because you were able to obviously turn some lemons into lemonade, but figure out what you were really most passionate about within this, this broader world uh, of archives and history. And -hmm. and so if you were going to work with, with, someone like me or my family, what what does that look like? Yeah, so I work with both organizations and private clients. Uh, for private clients, I'm usually working as their own personal archivist. So mm-hmm. I'm taking their, our, you know, their family history collection of things and bags and boxes and organizing it in a way like putting it in the proper storage, organizing it in a way that makes sense. So archivists call it um, physical and intellectual control, where we know how things are organized and what they contain, and then creating a guide to help them access their collection. I've also, um, I realized with a lot of uh, individuals, you know, not everyone has the means to hire an archivist, nor would want to. A lot of people really want to do this work Mm hands-on, especially if it's related to their own family and personal history. So I've created a lot of content, both things like books and webinars, but a lot of free content um, online to really give people um, some information about how to get started and how to think about the best ways moving forward with their own projects. So a, a lot of, you know, a lot of what I'm doing is both kind of the action and the physical stuff like a, and, you know, it's a, 
you know, I'm writing a proposal, there's contracts, and it's very formal. But then there's also a way to take this very specialized knowledge and expertise that can be very complex and kind of overly academic, and really finding a way to talk to people about the stuff that's really important for them. So I see it in a sense of also advocating for the field by connecting people to their stuff and helping people um, preserve their memories for the long term using archival practices. Oh, I love it. I, I'm so fascinated by this this phrase you used of, you know, items of enduring value. Because I'm mm-hmm. thinking of, of what I have as a scrapbooker that that's probably only a portion of what I have, not all of it. And what's one conversation we always have is that, you know, we keep generating these albums and, and what, what of that do we really want to leave behind and in what form do we want to leave that behind? You know, should we be digitizing our pages? And, and I think you're going to offer some different perspective on that uh, today. Definitely. I mean, I, I love using that phrase and it's funny because my students like have gotten gotten it kind of like brainwashed into their mind because I think if I talk about archival records, sometimes people think archival records are only old records. And a lot of them are. You know, I have I have materials where I was working with the collection of letters from um, 100 years ago. So they're definitely old, but in, records of enduring value can be created today. So if you're writing down your experiences of the pandemic or you're creating a scrapbook today, that's an, that can be a record of enduring value. That's an archival record if it's meant to be kind of carried over for generations to come for people to look back at, at uh, these materials. So I, I like that idea of that there's a value that continues on before, you know, it's not something that's just created for a transactional experience. It's something that has meaning through the years um, and historical meaning over time. Well, I think as scrapbookers, we all kind of come to the table on any given day with some of both of those things. Sometimes we're doing it for a creative outlet and sometimes we're doing it for that that legacy. And, and then a lot of times it's a combination of both. But I think that's what maybe would be the filter with which you can make some decisions, too, of what what really should be saved for for the long haul. Exactly. Exactly. So it sounds like this this kind of... Uh, I don't know, interest and passion you have for maybe uh, taking the academic nature out of this and helping people be take a pr- more practical approach was part of what inspired you to, to write your book, Creating a Family Archives. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so it was funny. I, so this is... Be- I wrote the first edition of this book. I self-published it a couple years ago, and it was a period between when I was laid off and before I started my consulting practice. And basically, I had people asking me um, in my family about how they could archive their stuff. And I was looking around, and I really could not find anything that really spoke to this audience. There are some uh, genealogy books that kind of touch upon it a little bit, but there wasn't anything that was really specific specific for uh, people that are non-archivists that would like to, you know, maintain their stuff, their historical and family stuff. So I started writing about it with a very practical point of view. And I also realized as I set up my uh, consulting practice that it was a way that I could help people and spread 
spread uh, my help and spread my name to people that wouldn't necessarily be able to work with me one-on-one, but they could still, you know, learn for themselves and gain some of that knowledge. So I had self-published that book and I was promoting it. And then I was approached by the Society of American Archivists, which is a professional organization for archivists in the United States, as you can probably imagine. And they were looking for, um, to create a book that was very similar, but you know, they, they were had stops and starts about how they were going to do it. And so when they saw my first edition of the book, they contacted me and we worked together to create this revised, updated, and expanded version, which is has um, many more. Um, it has pictures and examples, and it talks both about the physical archives and digital archives. And it's really something that people can really sink their teeth into and learn kind of the steps to move forward with not only taking on an archives project, but also how to deal with specific parts of the collection. Like I have one chapter that's devoted to photo albums and scrapbooks because that's a big um, that's a big issue that people have with kind of preserving these these precious items. So I found a lot of um, people responding really well to this book. And I get emails sometimes from people saying, you know, I started reading your book. I found this so helpful. And so it's been really, it's been really wonderful to have something um, that's meaningful and important to me and is kind of my life's work and being able to, through this book, really help save people's histories um, and really uh, talk about archives in a way that people understand and it resonates with them. Oh, I love that. You know, and I, I guess I want to thank you for doing that because I feel like this is something that's very needed. Um, I know we've had so many different conversations in our community over the years of, of how should you do this, but we didn't really have a place to turn. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially these days because we have both physical and digital records and, and how do you, how do you bridge that when your if you look at your family archive it's probably going to be in both formats and how do you bring a make connections between the two of those yeah so i always advise people so if you think about archives so or like records you're going to have both the physical record so that you know photographs letters paper documents for example you're going to have digital um, which can be digitized from that those physical things. And it's also something that we call born digital. So those are items that don't have a physical representation. So if you, let's say, um, take a, di- a picture on your phone, that's something that's born digital. Or if you start a spreadsheet, that's born digital as well. So we have these kind of certain um, buckets of stuff that we have to organize. I advise people to, because I know a lot of people uh, want to digitize and digitizing things makes makes things a lot more accessible. It's totally understandable. But what I find is that people sometimes jump to digitizing right away without getting their physical stuff in order. And I always advise to get your physical papers, photographs, and stuff organized in um, archival quality boxes and folders and protected and, you know, create a guide of what you have, basically an inventory of what you have. 
And then you can decide to go through your materials and then digitize the really wonderful parts of your collection. If you kind of race to digitize things right away, you wind up having a mess of physical files and a mess of digital files. And it just becomes like kind of chaotic. So basically, you if you are planning on digitizing things, you definitely want to make sure that whatever you digitize is following the same structure as your physical stuff because it'll be that much easier to find that original, for example. Um, and I think I also advise people, if you have uh, digital records, to make sure you're backing them up. We always advise to put them in three different places. Mm -hmm. So you want to put them on the cloud, you know, like in a Google Drive, for example, um, you want to keep them on your computer and then usually on a external hard drive. That way, if anything happens to those digital files and, you know, in one section, let's say your laptop dies or gets stolen, then you have those backups. I think what people don't realize is that your physical archives are relatively stable. So you could have a back uh, a box of paper documents. And as long as there's not some tornado or a pipe burst, for example, it, those paper documents are going to be okay for decades, centuries, let's say. But with, with digital files, we really do not know what, what's in store for them. They are much more easily corrupted. You need hardware and software to view these records. So we really don't know, you know, are the records that we're, we're creating today in a Word document 100 years from now, are they going to be accessible? We don't really know. And so I think that's the challenge is to really, um, you know, advise people about how to how to digitize things correctly and how to keep digital files, but also realizing that it requires much more proactive upkeep of these files versus the physical files. Oh, for sure. I really liked your approach on, uh, on a digitization project. I know that I went through, um, all of the photos my my parents had from birth to age 18. And I was like, there's no way that I could digitize all of them in the time that I was home. So I went through very rapidly, put sticky notes, not on the photos, but on the, you know, the page protectors. And I scanned about 200 of them. And now I have those photos that are, that are saved. And many of them are still on those magnetic pages and they shouldn't be, but at least I have 200 and I've stopped the degradation of that. And if that's all I ever have, it would be amazing. But someday I'll be able to go back and, and work on that project more. But I'm glad that I have just that, that snapshot because otherwise it would have been way too overwhelming and I'd still be on 1980 and I would have never made, made it past that first couple of years. Yeah, it's the idea of really prioritizing what mm -hmm. you want to spend your time on, where I think that's the other thing, too. People want to digitize everything, and it just it becomes too much. It's like what's nice about the physical is you can keep them for a long period of time relatively unscathed, but then you can choose, you know, what is worth me spending my time to digitize, to save, to buy a hard drive for? And it's, it's really saving, it's having a... It's saving that effort, but also really prioritizing and selecting what's most important of the collections. Yeah. So and the flip side of this, too, is those items that are, are born digital. Mm -hmm. How do you recommend treating those? Do you is there should there be an effort to to make them not digital, to, to print them, to, to have a, a physical copy? Or is your emphasis on the backup and the, the upkeep of those digital files? Well, I advise on both. So I think... 
for the majority of the files, you should have really good backup and making sure that you're, you know, you're looking through those collections and nothing is getting corrupted. Um, but I do also advise for what who what I call like home archivists to, you know, to print things out if things are really meaningful. So for example, I have digital photos on my phone as everyone does, and I have them backed up on my computer because they're important. But I've also used, you know, there's a ton of, uh, you know, apps on your phone that you can, I think like I used Walgreens, for example, you can print out, you know, you choose the photos that are on your Instagram or on your photo roll, and you can just send them through the app to Walgreens and then you walk down the street and you pick up the physical print images. And so in that case, I have kind of peace of mind that no matter what happens to my phone, whatever, you know, whatever happens to any of my backup devices, I do have these physical photos if I ever need them again. And so I think that's a really low effort, low cost way to just give yourself peace of mind. Um, And I think we should be you know, we should always be thinking about how we can save, especially those born digital documents, because, you know, if they get corrupted or they get accidentally deleted, sometimes it's hard to get them back and they're gone forever. Oh, for sure. I, I'm curious if you have if you have or make specific like software and service recommendations, or do you see your job as to share a process and lead people to find making their own decisions? Um, I sometimes I've stayed away from specific recommendations because the especially in let's say this book because technology changes so quickly that something that might be okay today might no longer be around you know oh, a sure. couple years yeah. from now. Um, I advise more on the processes, mm-hmm. but I know that people have specifically asked me about you know what do I use? So for photographs, I always. Uh, I always advise people to use Lightroom because I just think it's it's a relatively affordable software. There's lots of books about how to use it. And it was definitely Adobe Lightroom was was created for people that aren't necessarily archivists but care about organizing their stuff. So I think in that way, it really serves an audience. I would love to see... Um, a program or software that's dedicated to specifically family archives. I have seen people kind of approach it or kind of more startup uh, systems, but I haven't seen anything that I've really fallen in love with. And I love to see, I think eventually there will be some type of affordable software that can help organize digital files for people, Mm -hmm. um, especially family archives. And eventually it will happen, um, but it just hasn't been there yet. And I really wish there, there was, because when people ask me for software recommendations, everything I had, you know, everything that I can offer that might work in a organizational environment is not going to work for uh, personal collections. Well, I think there's always that there's always, some sort of option, but whether that option, as you mentioned before, will still be there in a year or five uh, is, is often not the case. And so you're looking for something that's that's like an Adobe product that you trust is going to be there for for years to come. So, it, you know, it's almost unfortunate and fortunate at the same time that it probably will have to come from a major corporate organization so that you have that trust in it. 
Exactly. Yeah. So that's why, you know, I trust Adobe is going to be here for a while. I trust Microsoft, you know, places, there's sites like, let's say Flickr, which I think was bought by Yahoo. I don't even know who owns that site anymore, but that, (laughs) you know, that years ago, you know, I was putting stuff on Flickr all the time, but because things change kind of corporate owners and people change their how they're doing business. It's not something that, you know, I can recommend right now because who knows what the future is going to hold for, especially for social media sites. It's like, you, you, you know, it could be something like Vine that was just shut down suddenly. So you just never know. And so whenever things are kind of outside, you know, the heaviest corporate entities are outside of your control, you really um, have to look for solutions that you feel are going to be relatively sustainable over time. Well, yeah, and that's it's an interesting uh, example, too, is because who would have ever thought that what has happened to Yahoo happened to Yahoo? And yeah, I always thought Flickr was going to be my my online home for my photos forever. And it's not anymore. So it's yeah, I'm in the same boat there. So I'm curious what, you know, we probably touched on some of these already, but what are some of the common mistakes you see individuals making when they're developing their family archive? So the two major ones I see, I touched upon um, the digitizing. So, you know, doing digitizing before you really need to do it. I've also find uh, found with digitizing, if people digitize records, they sometimes throw away the original physical copies. And that's just not a good idea. Just going back to the idea that digital files can be a little bit more unstable. So if you lose those digital files and you've thrown away the physical files, you have nothing. And that's always kind of a shame. Um, the other thing that I see, and this is kind of more um, basically like more archival uh, theory, I guess, is that people sometimes focus on the individual items versus looking at collections and groups. So archivists think about collections in terms of series and subseries. And so that's the terminology that we use. And what that really means is that we're looking at records. So, you know, letters or photographs in a collective, in a group, because that group gives those records more context. Mm-hmm. So a le- one letter in itself is going to give you a little bit of information. But if you have a letter in a group of letters from a certain time period, you get a much more richer sense of what was happening um, with that collection. So sometimes I see that people get really... Um, they get frustrated because they're looking at each individual item. So instead of, you know, a bunch of photographs from a certain period or in a, like a photo envelope, they're looking at each individual um, photograph and then making decisions about what to keep and what not to keep. It's so much better to start out just looking at huge groupings of materials. So if you're starting an archives project and you're, you know, you're pulling everything from your basement, your attic, and you're basically taking stock of what you have, always think in groups. So kind of big piles, big buckets of stuff, because then you'll get things much more organized, just across all your collections. And then once you have a sense of what you have and they're organized in these groups, you can choose parts of the collections, the 
the groups of the collections that you want to spend more time with. So if there's letters, for example, that you want to organize more in a chronological way and you want to digitize some of them, that's, you know, making that decision to spend more time with that particular group rather than treating everything on the same level and treating everything just as its, as its own item. Well, it seems like you need that comparison of you need to get that bird's eye view on the whole collection to determine so you can make those determinations of what is a priority and what is more important than another group of items. Yeah, so I think, and it's kind of funny because working with archival material, material, you really get into the details and the weeds of things. I think it's very easy to, especially with working with family archives or personal archives, you're remembering things, there's kind of emotions, which could be good and bad emotions that are brought up by the stuff. And it's very easy to spiral into really getting into the details, but you have to really take as you said, a bird eye, bird's eye view, a very overall view of the collection across what you have and really getting a sense of, of everything, of your, as I said, the physical and intellectual control of what you have. And then just like with digitizing, you can make those decisions about what's worth the investment of time. But you can't do that until you really have control of what you have. Well, that, yeah, that really... There's a, there's a certain parallel there with what we, we teach in scrapbooking in terms of, you know, focusing on your photos and then really understanding where the gaps are. And then if you, you look at your whole collection uh, of scrapbooks, you will see where you should spend your time. But if you just focus on, OK, I have this one photo I took yesterday, um, you, you're going to continually be feel like you're behind and not able to actually make a, a productive dent in what you want to accomplish. But when you, di- you do take that bigger picture perspective, you um, can feel more satisfied and feel like you, you really are uh, making a valuable investment of your time. Exactly. So I'm curious if you have any additional advice, advice for scrapbookers and how they can maybe act more like an archivist in their projects. Yes. Yeah, so I think uh, when I'm looking at scrapbooking materials, um, I find some kind of interesting terminology. So a lot of times you'll see things that that are kind of vague. So you'll see, um, let's say, things are called archival quality or photo safe. Mm-hmm. And those two terms kind of really don't mean anything. They're, they're not really, you can state them, but they're not backed up with anything. So I always advise scrapbook, scrapbookers to, to specifically look for labels like acid-free so knowing that there's not acid in the materials, mm-hmm. um, lignin-free, which is the the kind of the stuff in wood that, if you look at old newspapers, over time they become really brittle and dark. That's the lignin in it. So you want to look for lignin-free, and then you also want to look for something called the photographic activity test. And so basically, manufacturers send their materials to an organization, and they do basically a stress test. They, they um, accelerate the aging process of these materials to see if there's chemical changes. And uh, if they're pretty resistant, they're not going to change your photographs over time. So I think part of scrapbooking, especially if you're scrapbooking with kind of an archival mindset where it's maybe perhaps not like just a fun project in the moment, but you're really kind of creating something that you want to live for generations to come, is thinking about using supplies that are going to um, be sustainable uh, and 
preservation worthy over the long haul. I would also say too that sometimes people have um, have inherited scrapbooks, and so I think what's love what's lovely. Uh, I think archivists have a love hate relationship with scrapbooks because, especially older scrapbooks, can have all different ephemera stuff that can be, you know, like flowers and and Uh matchstick uh, matchstick, uh, holders and ribbons. And so those things all kind of age and decay over a certain period of time. There's a ton of tape and a ton of glue. And um, sometimes when people inherit these scrapbooks, they kind of don't know what to do. They think, should I take it apart? Should I digitize it as it is? Um, but I think the value in scrapbooks is not only the stuff that they contain, it's also how it's laid out. So someone created a scrapbook and organized the photos in a certain way, saved specific things, maybe wrote handwritten captions, and that is the real uh, enduring value of of the scrapbook, not necessarily stuff it contains, but the this, this stuff in context and organized. So for older scrapbooks, I advise people don't take it apart unless it's com- maybe completely falling apart and you have no choice. You want to maintain it as it is. So sometimes that would mean putting it in a, um, getting a archival box, for example, and using uh, archival tissue paper to interleave between the pages so you can protect what's in those pages. And keeping them with those layers of protection is going to um, it's going to at least stop or slow the further decay of the scrapbook. Um, it's going to keep out light. It's going to keep out dust. It's going to protect its edges. And... Um, and and you can also digitize it either like the pages or a spread to make it more um, accessible. But I just had someone contact me about her older scrapbooks and she wanted to take them apart. And I think once you take something apart, you lose, even if you're really good at kind of organizing how, or like putting it in the same order that the things were, it's like you lose that value of the thing itself. Sure. And so you want to kind of keep it as is. So I think with uh, modern day scrapbookers, as long as you're being really mindful of um, the quality of materials that you're using, and also I imagine telling stories that, you know, you're using people's, you know, you have nicknames for people, but you're also documenting um, people's full names, the dates that things occurred, the locations, you're, you're kind of almost using um, kind of facts and figures to describe what exactly you're looking at. Because I think, you know, a scrapbook that you're creating today, you already know that information. But if you think about, you know, if my grandchild is, or my great grandchild is going to look at this scrapbook, are they going to even understand what's happening in this, in this scrapbook? So, you know, making sure to record um, people, dates, events, locations, that's really important as well. Well, gosh, I want to thank you for this different perspective, because it's certainly some things that maybe I haven't thought about in a while. Um, I think uh, acid-free and lignin-free maybe was more of a buzzword uh, in decades past in scrapbooking, less so Mm -hmm. today. I'm thinking about maybe some of the, we use these products called wood veneers, these little embellishments on our pages, Uh which I'm assuming are sound bad now. (laughs) Um, (laughs) 
Probably, yes. And so it, it's interesting to kind of put this lens on it and maybe look at our our stash of supplies and see what really is is safe today. And then if, if you are choosing to use those, maybe choosing to not use them on your photos and using them, you know, maybe in a pocket that's that won't be as protected that's next to your photos. Um, just in terms of thinking about what what you want yes. this to look like in a hundred years. Yes, definitely. That's that's what just keeping just having a just being mindful about it, you know, and making those choices is definitely important. Well, I think there also has to be like a be mindful, but not. Uh, I don't want to say obsessive, but like don't don't go into it with fear. Go into it with you know opportunity and and hope for the future, because I think that if you. Now I don't want I don't want our our listeners to go away and be like oh my gosh I've done everything wrong. No, you have you have new information in which now you can make better decisions going forward. Yes. Yeah. Well, this has been so eye opening in so many ways, and of course delightful to talk to you. Can you share where we can find you online and maybe anything that you have coming up? Yeah. So I post regularly on my website, which is margonote.com. I have um, you know a blog post weekly, and a lot of it's dedicated to creating family archives. I also have a, a page on there that's uh, forward slash uh, resources that I created specifically to use for the pandemic because people have more time at home right now, and they're taking on and tackling their family and personal uh personal projects. So I have a bunch of resources there that people can access. I also am doing um, every Sunday afternoon, I, uh, as long as this pandemic uh, you know, continues, I'll be hosting a free webinar that talks about how to create family archives while social distancing. So I want to give people kind of peace of mind and some tips and tricks that they can immediately do um, with their family archives at home for very little cost um, or no cost at all. And just thinking about how to organize their stuff while they have this extra time at home. I think another important part that I talk about in the webinar and on my resources page is really filling in those gaps of family stories. So there's a lot of resources about questions you can ask yourself or or questions that you can ask relatives to really fill in the stories that perhaps you are physical or digital archives, you know, they don't have those stories. So I think primarily what I'm trying to do both during the pandemic and afterwards is really make people feel empowered to collect their stories and to preserve their stories and to make them accessible both for themselves now and for family members in the future. Well, and I think there's also uh, this experience has given us uh, obviously a, a new value or a, a revalue of what is most important and that there may be a time sensitivity to collecting some of those stories from family members and to, to look at to look at what you want to do with that, that priority placed on it. Yeah. I mean, now is the time to make those connections. I think Mm -hmm. we're real, really realizing where kind of all the fluff and the busyness of life kind of falls away when we're, you know, sheltering in place and working at home and, and, you know, being with her immediately fam- immediate family members, but it also this time period also really emphasizes connections, f- friend connections, family connections, and we can use this time 
in a positive, as positive as can be given the circumstances, to really document those stories, the stories that are happening now, but also past events. And I would I would advise people to, you know, given our kind of intellectual and emotional bandwidths, to really think about how to document th- those stories right now. This is the perfect time to focus on that. Well, thank you for your time and for coming on the podcast. I Hopefully we can talk again sometime in the future, hopefully under better circumstances as well. And I want to thank our audience for listening. And I want you to go away and remember that you have permission to scrapbook your way.